Welcome to an episode of Weekly Weights. We lift weights and we are mates. On the weekend, we go on dates. Weekly Weights, Tim and Buddy. Weekly Weights with Alex and Will. All right, everybody. Welcome to Weekly Weights. It's episode 80-something, 84. Three. We're somewhere in the 80s. And today we're joined by Dr. Daniel Hackett of Sydney University. And primarily we're going to talk about a couple of review papers that he's due to bring out quite soon on the trainability of women. But if you're at all into sports science research, it's very likely that you've come across a little bit of work that Daniel's been involved in. Um, His PhD was in respiratory muscle performance and assessing resistance training effort in bodybuilding. And further down that line, I believe, is this correct, Daniel, that you were the one who first validated the reps and reserve model of RPA? Uh, if, if we go by the name of reps and reserve, I say no. But if we're going from the premise of estimating how many repetitions to failure, yes. Right. So, okay. so repetitions to failure model, not repetitions in reserve. Yeah, it's essentially the same thing. But I came out in 2012 with the estimated repetitions to failure. I think... Um, Mike Zudos, he yeah. came out in, I think, um, 2013, 14 with his repetitions on reserve. Um, it's, it's commonly, he's commonly cited as the first one to do it. You're totally welcome to diss other researchers on the podcast. So if you want to say that his work's derivative, then... No, no, no. It's all, all fair. So, um, yeah, no, but yeah, I have done a lot of research in the past in that area and also continue, continuing on with it. Um, so it's a, it's an emerging field because most people are looking at ways to, I guess, make training, um, resistance training that is easier to quantify and, um, yeah, just repetition of reserves seems to be a a really, I guess, as long as it's done well, um, it's an easy way of, um, just monitoring progression. Yeah, cool. And on top of that, um, on top of looking at those strategies for estimating resistance training difficulty. Who is also involved in the recent GBT studies. That's what they're colloquially known as, but investigating basically how much volume might be productive within a session or a week. There's been a couple of studies now that have come out about that from Sydney Uni. Daniel was involved there. He also worked with our previous guest, Timothy Davies, um, looking at cluster set protocols for strength training. Was that with Tim? Am I correct there? Yes, that's right. Yep. Um, and done a little bit of work on velocity-based training, fasted training, and investigating current bodybuilding practices. So lots of really interesting research and now currently doing some work that he was just telling us about um, off air on occlusion training. Um, Daniel, what have we missed and what are your current research interests? Okay, it is quite um, vast. Um, I have a special interest in resistance training, obviously, and looking at ways in which we can enhance performance as well as the adaptations that result from resistance training. Um, I've now delved into a bit of clinical research as well. Um, And in that, looking at changes in gut bacteria, which is kind of like an interesting area all by itself. Um, But primarily, I have focused um, on strength um, development and muscular strength Um, enhancing muscle hypertrophy and ways in which you can do that. And um, just actually today, been looking into um, FES, functional electrical stimulation, and potentially working on a project in which we might be able to see whether um, the implementation of FES, maybe as a recovery strategy, strategy or even as a way of 
I guess, um, enhancing a, I guess, an exercise bout, whether that would be beneficial for people focusing on strength and as well as hypertrophy. So, sorry for people unfamiliar with the term, um, what does FES entail? Okay, so FES entails a, an electrical current that will be um, um, sent to a, to a muscle. So there's an ele- electrodes placed on muscles and there's going to be an electrical stimulus that activates the muscle. So what that does is it's known as an involuntary, involuntary muscle contraction. And for certain people, certain populations that cannot activate their muscle themselves, this is a way in which they can um, improve their health um, through activating muscles that over time become atrophied or basically weakened and and, um, a lot smaller. So with um, the functional electrical stimulation, it's just a way in which we can activate the muscle without us having to do it ourselves, but also sometimes with motivation, we all know that you know during that last set, um, sometimes you may not go all the way to failure. You might have a little bit of untapped um, reserve there. The FES can help to enhance that um, activation of the muscle. So I've got images in my head of personal trainers with like cattle prods poking their clients who don't seem to be giving it their all between sets and so, saying sort of like it's all you, bro, while while electrocuting them. Is that the future? Well, I don't know. Um, I was talking to someone today about in the early 80s, this was the big craze of um, sticking these electrodes, especially on the guts, you know, to try to help to um, expose your, your six-pack. And um, people were claiming that it was the, the best way of, you know, enhancing that, that six-pack look. Um, I recall watching a Bruce Lee movie with him doing something like that in between writing, um, writing some, I don't know, books or whatever he was doing. Um, so it has been around for a while in terms of the research. I don't know in terms of apparently able-bodied people or apparently healthy, healthy people, how much research is focused on this area. I know from a rehabilitation perspective, physiotherapists have been using this mm-hmm. as a way to help um, regain function in people that have had, let's say, um, hamstring injuries and definitely in um, people that have impaired ability to activate their muscles. So people with spinal cord injury, people with multiple sclerosis, um, this is a, a primary focus of them being able to activate these muscles. Cool. Um, we're going to move on to the topic at hand because we could, we could end up off in the weeds really easily. And that are these two systematic reviews and meta-analyses. Are they meta-analyses as well? Yes, they are. Yeah. Um, two systematic reviews and meta-analyses that, you, that you're due to bring out on the trainability of women. Um, so can you just describe to the audience what these projects are and what the differences are between the two papers that you're bringing out? Yeah, sure. Um, the first paper was essentially to look at the, the gains or the, um, the, the improvements in strength and hypertrophy following a resistance training intervention in females. Um, the females, um, the criteria for this review were females um, that were not currently involved in any other type of exercise. So um, largely they were untrained. The intervention um, did not um, involve any type of supplementation. So it was just primarily a resistance training intervention in a group of women untrained. And we were interested to see what type of an effect resistance training would have on muscle strength as well as muscle hypertrophy. Um, 
do you want me to tell you the results? You do, want, do you want me to just compare it to the other review? We'll compare it to the other one and then we'll talk results, I think. Okay. So with the other review, this review, um, we're just in the moment of extracting all the, the data from the, these papers. Uh, there are a lot of papers. Like we're talking about um, 50, 60. So 50, 60 studies. This is going to be a very, very comprehensive review. Um, it will be well cited. Um, so I'm working with researchers from the University of New South Wales. Uh, it, it, it is a big project, but we're, um, it, we're expecting some really interesting findings. Um, this study is, like I said, it's comparing directly male and female response to resistance training. Similar to the first um, review in that it's basically looking at resistance training in a, a group of um, males and females the age, it's from young children, under 18, all the way up to the elderly. So it, it's just vast in, in that way, um, in um, chronological age. Uh, it is also going to identify whether there are any difference, differences in the way females and males adapt to training. Right. So if we go back to the first paper, um, what you're essentially saying is you're pulling all the data on studies on untrained women um, and seeing what the, what the responses are to resistance training. What is the purpose of bringing all of that data together and what's the purpose of doing it without having that, that other reference group like men for comparison? Okay. Uh, well, in hindsight, it would have been better to do what we're doing with the second paper, mm -hmm. comparing them directly. Um, at the at the idea of this first paper, we we were just testing the waters. We we didn't know um, we we didn't know whether we had enough to go off with a male and female comparison directly. We didn't know we, whether we had the resources. That's probably one of the driving big driving factors because to to embark on such a big review requires a lot of hands on work. Um, so for example, with this second review paper, there's five people that are involved in extracting all the data and then we have to check that. And this is like, it would take probably, um, we started this early this year, um, and it's probably going to take another six months or so. So for five or six people, um, yeah, over a year, roughly. Uh, so when we did the first paper, it was more um, manageable for myself and uh, my um, colleague to just embark on this project. And we, we were going to run some analyses to look at some variables that would most likely predict um, what resulted in greater changes in muscle strength and hypertrophy. So even though it would have been great to make that comparison of male and females with the initial review, we can actually look more in depth at what type of training variables most likely predicted greater gains in strength and hypertrophy. So focusing just on the women, we could still derive a lot of interesting findings from that initial review. Cool. And so what were the main results of that initial review? Okay, so firstly, uh, well, it was a no-brainer that you increase strength and hypertrophy, females do, with um, resistance training. The, the variables that most likely influenced the, the results, um, surprisingly, probably I wouldn't say surprisingly, but whether the interventions were supervised. 
Um, not a lot of researchers look into this, but supervision in a research study is so important. So the studies in which had supervision of the exercises and the, the whole training itself tended to show greater gains in strength and hypertrophy. So it probably suggests that these individuals were more compliant with the intervention. So that was uh, one um, finding. Uh, the exercise intensities, um, higher intensities tended to lead towards greater gains in strength. Again, that's something that is probably well known now. The hard thing to, um, I guess, decipher was the effect of training volume. So there, the classical, classical approach of looking at training volume would be the reps times the sets um, and somehow trying to add in the load as well. That can be quite problematic because you're, you're kind of um, confounding in a way the intensity as well, the load, mm. when you're adding in the, the, you know, the total reps. So we did find that volume was influential um, with, from my memory, I think it was lower body, muscle hypertrophy, but not um, upper body. Um, so one of the two, I'm pretty sure it was lower body. Um, and so that was something that was quite interesting. But I guess the, the one thing that was quite clear was that the studies were really different. Like with a systematic review, what people need to do is exercise caution when looking at the final results. With all the reviews that I've been a part of, I've always placed down a large list of limitations because I want to make sure that the, the research that I'm, I am involved in and I'm uh, disseminating, that people understand that you shouldn't just believe everything that is shown during the results from these analyses. We need to look between the lines. Um, now, the, the studies are so different, like a four-week intervention compared to a 52-week intervention, an mm. intervention in which there was two exercises that were manipulated compared to another intervention, which was a full body. So um, it is really important that when reading through reviews that people take a bit more time, not just focusing on the results, but actually spending a bit of time on the methodology mm. um, because you can gain a lot of insight into how the results were, I guess, um, found and what the results truly mean. So again, a lot of our listeners probably don't have a university level education in exercise science, but they might still be interested to look at reviews like this just to see what the literature is saying about training responses. For people who did want to have a look at things like that to see like how diverse were the studies included here, how confident are the researchers in their results and what might explain some of the differences that they see, where in a paper could somebody go to just find that information? Okay, so there, um, firstly, most reviews, um, good reviews anyway, they have a study quality analysis um, generally, this is a checklist of certain things that would be required to ensure that the study is of a, a good quality. And these checklists tend to give a total mark or a, a total um, sum. And generally, the higher the score, the better. So one thing that you could do is to look at the quality of the studies and see what quality of the, the overall quality of the studies. Generally, you'd want something of moderate to high standard. 
um, the reviews that I've been part of, um, I don't think any of them have been high. Um, they're all low to moderate. Um, the one that I'm currently involved in, these two, or the, the first one anyway, was a moderate standard. So that's first. Um, the other one is a, a bit more complicated. It's a statistical um, result. Um, it's known as, um, it's a homogeneity. It's to do with how closely a, um, basically how similar a study is compared to other studies. And it gives you a, a, um, a value known as I squared. And generally, the, it's as a percentage, the values, the units, the higher the percentage, the greater um, the, the variation in terms of how different the results are from that study. So when you have studies that show a, a greater um, difference um, there, that tends to mean that these results, um, it's probably unsuitable to combine these results because they are not from the same population or same type of area. So for example, you might have a group of really old, frail women compared to another study which had young, regularly trained women. So combining those two um, would be seen as not appropriate. And you would generally see that the I squared for those studies would be quite high if they were pulled together. Cool. All right, before we move on to the second paper, because I think that's the one that's going to be really interesting to the listeners. I'm, I was really curious about how you said supervision of training appeared to have an effect on the results that they got. Um, would you like to speculate about what practical implications that might have for, for people coaching and people just introducing women to strength training generally? Yeah, definitely. Um, well, we were talking about briefly the estimated repetitions to failure or repetitions of reserve with the studies that I've been involved in generally when a person is close to failure, they have a lot more repetitions in reserve. Okay. And a person may feel failure. Is that what you're saying? That's right. Yep. So with supervision, that motivation and also knowing the previous history of the, the trainer, you will be able to extract that little bit of extra performance from them. Um, so from a motivational perspective, we all know that, we, we do need to get a, a, a certain, you need to be at a certain proximity from failure generally for a, a certain proportion of your training to reap the benefits. Mm. Um, when you are further away from what I've read and what I've experienced through research and also um, um, clients that I've trained, you do not see as great of gains. Um, so with a supervised training session, you're able to more appropriately target higher intensities and efforts during training sessions. Um, as well as that, you can become, you can be more strict in terms of having someone follow the prescription of the exercise. Uh, in, in other studies that I've been involved in where we've had people basically supervised, but we haven't been as stringent in terms of, hovering over them and telling them what to do, people get into their, their whole um, social type um, 
persona where they're, they're more likely to have their chats and, and not be strict with having, you know, their 90 seconds or two, two minutes recovery in between sets. And in terms of lifting with maximal intention, that tends to drop off too. So if we want to make sure that someone is um, essentially following precisely the prescription, supervision is definitely the way to go. And so do you think um, for people who are kind of new to resistance training and who can't have a personal trainer or something with them all the time when they're training, do you think maybe having like having some like acclimatization to actually going to failure so you know what appropriate effort feels like and training with partners or with more experienced people might actually meaningfully improve their results? Yes and no. Um, so yes, it'd be great to for someone to understand what their full capacity is. So how many repetitions are they able to perform when using 80% of their one repetition maximum? So that, that's great. That's really important information to, to know. Um, and then connecting with their performance capabilities, their perception. So there is, for someone that's untrained or maybe less used to um, utilizing their perception of effort and the, I guess the sensations are going to failure, there's going to be a greater disconnect. They're, they're going to be able to, you know, oh, I'm, I don't have many more repetitions in reserve, but they do. So you want to kind of bring those two together, their perception as well as their true capabilities, bring that together, um, close together so that they're able, the trainers are able to better predict their performance. Yeah. But what I um, was hinting at before, not necessarily, was that on a day-to-day basis, you will see fluctuation in your performance. And that's not a bad thing from my own personal opinion because we cannot continually beat our bodies um, to the wall. If we just keep going, um, you know, all in on every set, for example, you will notice that your performance over time will plateau and potentially if you don't allow it enough recovery, you will start to see a, a detraining, overtraining um, type of situation. So some sessions definitely should be performed at a higher intensity and in that situation, definitely someone should be there to help motivate potentially spot and give some feedback. Other sessions, I, I'm under the belief that you don't really need to be hitting the, you know, your, your repetitions at that great of an intensity. Um, and th- there is a little bit of research that is now starting to come out, uh, which I think is interesting, that you can be quite a f- like a large number of repetitions away from failure and still benefit from the resistance training interventions. Um, So there was one by Carol. He looked at hypertrophy mainly and he showed that basically there were similar degrees of hypertrophy in a group that didn't basically approach failure, the proximity of failure at all. Like I think it's like six to seven repetitions away from from, from failure compared to a group that went to failure. Um, So there is starting to emerge some more studies and evidence from these studies that maybe you don't have to always work at that high of an intensity and maybe um, periodically that's the way of really structuring your program. Um, Having certain time periods where you definitely need to, you know, lift your effort, 
But at other times, it's, it's more about just, I guess, going through the motions and maybe manipulating like volume and targeting the muscle in different ways. Um, oh yeah, Alex, go. I think the, from my experience, I think the um, most important part of having supervision is keeping the quality of work high to ensure like we're limiting injury risk and we're keeping the work on the targeted muscles versus on the secondary muscles or whatever the case is versus keeping the intensity as high as we can. Do you find that yep. to be true as well? Definitely. Yeah. I definitely agree with that. Um, because we know that when people are focused on just lifting the weight, then they will just focus on just moving that weight any way they can, which will take away, um, um, a little bit, from the muscle that they're trying to activate. So definitely from that perspective, if you're targeting a particular muscle and also trying to stick to a particular technique, supervision would be um, highly recommended. Cool. Let's move on to this second paper, which was the one comparing female and male responses. Um, how, like how much of your results have you really collated at this point? Uh, probably, ooh. so we haven't run any statistical analyses yet. Um, so we've just, we're now in the moment of entering the data. So I cannot tell you exactly what the results will be, but I'm speculating that you will find that there will be similar degrees of muscle hypertrophy and strength for females and males in terms of relative, that is relative gains. And I think that's going to be very surprising because for a long time, people have been under the impression that males tend to gain greater strength or probably more so hypertrophy than females. But I think that this review will kind of throw a spanner of the works in terms of that belief. And when you say equal relative gains, do you mean by percentage of uh, lean mass or percentage of body weight or... Yeah, percentage of lean mass. Okay. And um, again, I feel like everything we're saying now is going to be a little bit speculative because you haven't got the results fully. Yeah. Do you expect to see differences across the body, like maybe women gaining equal lower body strength but not as much upper body strength and things like that, or no? Uh, if, if we're able to run those analyses, yes. Um, from the studies that I've been extracting the data, majority of them have either focused on whole body, um, lean body mass or fat-free mass or lower body. So thighs, I don't expect to see a lot of studies that have just primarily focused on the upper body. So I don't know whether we, we would be able to identify whether there would be a difference there. Um, my own belief is that, um, males would most most likely you would think like physiologically they would have the potential to great gain greater increases in muscle hypertrophy for the upper body. That's due to a greater number of androgen receptors as well as also a, a greater um, level of testosterone and other androgenic um, hormones. So I would suspect that, but I don't have any proof to like, I could yeah, obviously cherry pick papers, but from a systematic perspective i don't have any proof to say that this is what would happen so i reckon it'd be cool if we backpedal a little bit 
and talk about why people might have assumed that men would gain more muscle and strength than women. So what's the thinking that might have underpins that in the first place? And, and if you could also hazard a guess as to why it appears we might be wrong, that'd be cool too. Okay. So I guess we can start off by um, the, the physiological, oh, sorry, the, um, the, the physique, physique of males compared to the physique of females. So obviously when um, we go through our growth and development, the, the males will obviously start to show a broadening of the shoulders due to um, their increase in testosterone that will happen around the 13, 14 year age mark. And then you will start to see the differentiation between athletic performance between males and females. So at that point, you start to see the influence that um, hormones play on performance, physical performance. So when we start to see that, we assume that males are going to be a lot stronger, a lot faster, um, and maybe you could say a lot fitter in some areas. So when we, we start to look into that area, then we see that the absolute differences are quite extreme. Well, basically, there's significant absolute differences between males and females. Mm. And when we look at those differences, we then suspect that, well, males have a greater ability to gain strength and hypertrophy compared to females. But, and this is the big but, um, that is not the case from what we've been looking at more recently. Um, when expressed relative to lean body mass, because we know that there is also um, differences in body composition between males and females. With males, we have um, a greater amount of lean mass um, in um, relevance to the fat mass, while in females, we have the opposite. We have greater fat mass in um, re- relative to the lean mass. So when we express changes relative to lean mass, you can see that the changes in strength and also the changes in lean body mass, basically we bring them back to a very level situation there. And um, So can I just interrupt? What it sounds like you're describing is men might have a higher starting point with more muscularity, but if you know, if they had figurative numbers, 50 kilos of muscle on their frame and a resistance training intervention put five kilos of muscle on them, that's a 10% increase. Whereas an average woman may carry 30 kilos of muscle mass, but still gain three kilos to still make a 10% increase in response to a similar training program. Is that what you're saying? That's correct. Yes. Yes. Right. So the absolute magnitude of change might be greater in the male's case, but the relative change is actually very similar. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Sorry to have interrupted you. What were you saying then? Uh, well, I guess like when we're looking into what kind of led towards this, um, I guess the speculation that males tend to gain greater amounts of strength and hypertrophy, we also shouldn't um, neglect the fact that for a long time, women haven't really been attracted to going into the gym and using weights. Mm. So there, there is limited research um, overall in terms of the response of um, females to resistance training. When you look at all other sports, you can start to see that initially when women started to participate in more competitive sports, 
we see that there was a larger difference between males and females. And we can start to see now the difference reduce to the point where we can see that um, there are differences, but they're definitely not as great as what they were at the commencement of when women started to, um, I guess, participate more in competitive sports. So from a resistance training perspective, we can also see that um, as more and more females tend to gravitate towards resistance training, you'll start to see that there will be, um, you know, these outliers. You'll see some women that will be able to, um, you know, achieve phenomenal increases in strength, um, increases in muscle hypertrophy, but you'll also see women that won't perform as well. Um, so that, that just comes with um, just, you know, humans in themselves. We'll have people that will respond more compared to others. We'll all respond in some way, but how we respond will differ. So I, I guess when you're thinking about the pool, um, we have less women compared to males that are working in the gyms, you know, training this way. But over time, I think you will see that um, it, it will become more common knowledge that males and females adapt similarly. Well, we're starting to see it in powerlifting as well. If we look at the world records, for instance, in the weight classes of similar um, similar kilograms in compared to men and women, the gaps are sort of shortening between the women and the men. The women are sort of improving more rapidly yep. just because of that participation. Like you said, like more women into the sport, greater pool. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So I do, I do think there probably could be, I guess it depends on, like if we look at a powerlifting, there could be certain biomechanical advantages and disadvantages for some of the lifts for males compared to females. Um, so there is that too, but I don't think that that would account for very, very large differences. Like we're talking about like um, five percenters and things like that. Um, but yeah, in terms of how males and females adapt, it's obviously going to be quite similar. But whether males are able to gain more, um, well, if if so, it, from what I've seen, it's not going to be by a lot. So what are some other maybe relevant physiological differences between males and females? You mentioned biomechanical differences. So if you... If you could lay out one or two of them, it'd be great. But what about things like the nervous system and types of muscle fibers that seem to predominate in either sex? Are there important differences there? Yeah, um, there, there has been a couple of studies that have looked at uh, the fatigability of um, muscle groups and showing that females tend to fatigue at a, I guess, a, a slower rate um, or basically during a a submaximal set uh, or su sorry, a submaximal load performed to failure that females are able to, to uh, accumulate a greater volume. So um, there is some evidence that the oxidative capacity of fibers for females of the, the leg muscles uh, may be greater. Um, it, it is, again, um, hasn't been studied that extensively. And there are other factors that could play a role, such as pain thresholds. That's a big one because I guess women, they've got that, um, the, um, they've been built that they are able to withstand pain through childbearing, um, childbirth. And 
They yeah, still can't deal with man flu, though. They don't know how bad no. do they? Yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel obviously had to delay this episode, by the way, because he had such a bad case of man flu. Um, I did. It really yeah. is something else, honestly. You look terrible. I'm glad you could soldier through this. I know, I know. Oh, yeah, I'm lucky I'm still here, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so pain thresholds, possibly oxidative capacity. Yeah, yeah. So um, those are those are some areas where, again, like when you look between studies, you will always notice that, and because that's what we're we're driven. Our our um, our recommendations, our um, advice should always be driven by evidence, mm. because even though we might you know, find certain things work for some people like that. That's, that's fair enough. And you will see that and that may not be supported entirely by research, but overall we should be using science to guide us in terms of um, what decisions that we make. So in saying that um, science does have its pitfalls and some of them are to do with conflicting views. So when I was talking about the whole fatigability, there is some studies to show that there was there have been no differences in the ability of males and females to perform, um, I guess, maximal uh, repetitions with sub-maximal loads. So there, like I said, there has been evidence to show that, but in terms of a consensus, um, it's it's not it has not been confirmed, but that's one factor. The the whole um, oxidative capacity of fibers. Uh, I, I guess in terms of uh, like knee joint angle, um, so females have a, a greater um, Q angle. So that's basically the angle from the the hips to the knees. So from a front um, frontal perspective. So when looking at a female from um, front on, you will see that from their hips to their knees, that they will kind of move inwards more compared to a male. And because of that, that will influence the way in which um, forces are transmitted when performing things like exercises like squats. It will also have a, an effect on certain muscles like the gluteals, um, which are really important, especially the glute med for keeping the um, the femurs externally rotated. So because of that, um, there is, I would say, um, some potential studies that may be required to look at the activation of muscles when performing certain exercises, because I would suspect that males and females may have different recruitment patterns um, as a result of the their um, their physiques and and, and um, structure structural differences because it would kind of make sense that with bones and the way in which bones move is through the attachment to muscles so you would I guess suspect that muscle activation would probably be quite different for males and females when performing um, certain exercises yeah and I think even in just like our practices as powerlifting coaches. Alex and I probably observe that some of our female clients begin to experience failure or technical breakdown in especially the squat and deadlift in ways that are a little bit different from our male clients. So a good example was um, Mags, your client. So Alex trains a lightweight female client who when she squats, her hips sort of slowly start to give out and then eventually it'd be her upper back giving out right rather than her legs. Um, whereas among like, you know, our heavier male clients that really, 
you really see like catastrophic failure of leg strength first and not so much torso strength or hip strength. And perhaps that's, that's part of what's to do with it, although I'm sure there's a lot more as well. But that would be a common thing that I see across many of my female clients is postural strength starts to limit them more so than just pure leg strength in lower body movements. Mm. Yeah. Um, so I definitely think that the, the, the broadened um, hips uh, would play a role in that um, in terms of, you know, giving out at the, the glutes or compared to the quads. Um, and you'll also have to look into like core stabilization, uh, which is a, a really important area um, of focus um, in terms of females and the activation of the core and how like there's, yeah, there's all of that, that I guess probably requires a bit more focus as well. Um, then we haven't even got into the menstrual cycles, which is another massive area altogether. Um, well, let's plug one of our prior episodes, episode 50 with Lyle McDonald. We spoke extensively about the menstrual cycle, learned a lot. That episode's yep. gotten really good feedback. Um, but yeah, anyway, sorry, you can carry on. I just wanted to make sure to plug us. Go on. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so you, you told me about that episode and um, it sounds really informative. So um, I, I think that thinking in terms of the whole menstrual cycle and training, well, that is obviously going to play a role in the ways in which females do respond to training. Mm. Um, and you will also see that there'll be differences um, with body composition around these time periods, water and fluid um, accumulation and retention, which would also have an influence on, um, well, I guess, physique type athletes. So um, trying to schedule competitions around times in which they're not experiencing um, you know, these, um, I guess, shifts in terms of their menstrual cycles and things like that. Right. So I reckon we should dive into the actual training variables um, and maybe see what differences or similarities there might be in male and female response to training. So based on the data you've collected so far and just your, your experiences and beliefs, do you think females respond differently to different training frequencies to men? I know my, my opinion is that they do not. Okay. Um, now the reason for that is because it, again, it's really difficult to when looking at previous history of someone, that's a factor that will influence the way in which someone responds to training. Um, so how long they've trained for what type of training they've done, so if you, everything on an equal keel, um, if males and females would respond the same way for frequency. So I think that that would strike many of our listeners as controversial. So that's good. We're already stirring the pot. Um, because it's become, it's become very common practice among powerlifters for females to do higher frequencies than men. And not all, of that, not all of the rationale for that would be underpinned by actual differences between the sexes. Um, a large part of the rationale would just be that women tend to be smaller than men and handle lighter loads. And so the recovery demands are probably a little bit lesser. But some people would say that possibly having higher estrogen levels and things might contribute 
to faster recovery or less susceptibility to muscle damage. And differences in fatigability between the sexes might mean that they can handle higher total training frequencies. Um, how would you respond to somebody who made that argument to you? Well, the whole f fatigability, like I said, um, it's, there is mixed results out there from um, studies showing that, yes, there is some studies where um, females were able to show that their rate of fatigue was less. Um, they were able to perform more work. But um, in some of those studies, you actually see that the exercises in which they showed that there was that fatigability for the females, there were other exercises where they didn't show that at all. Right. So we're, we're, we're looking at, again, we're cherry picking in terms of, well, this exercise there was, there's a difference and this exercise there's not. When talking about females responding to higher frequency, if we, if we take a very narrow view, um, well, over a two week period, yeah, sure. But then if we take a broader view, let's say over six months or 52 months, when females may need to back off their training, okay, what happens then? It could be something that's accumulated over a longer period of time, not necessarily to do with a very small period. So for example, 14 days of training or 14 training sessions within, let's say a, I don't know, a two week period. Um, well, what, needs to be accounted for is firstly the intensities, um, the loads, uh, the, there's just so many variables. And when people start to cherry pick, that's when I've got a, a kind of a problem. Like I, I would always err on the side of caution when mm -hmm. making big statements about, well, males will respond differently to females because there are so many factors that will influence how someone truly responds. Um, I, I could just, I can name two already that could basically, it could actually reverse a lot of the results of studies that I've seen in the last couple of years. So for example, diet, if, if diet isn't well controlled and I mean actually controlled, not telling the person just to remain or keep the same diet that they were doing prior to the intervention. I mean that they're following the, the same type of diet. If that isn't well controlled, then that is obviously going to affect the training response. And then we also have um, sleep. So majority of, or I'd say all of the gains that we see. So in terms of how our body repairs itself, that is done during sleep. So, in terms of how well we sleep, um, how long we sleep, all those factors too, you don't really hear much of this, okay? And, and we, we think that it kind of evens itself out in a study if we get enough numbers. And I'm doubtful of that from what I've seen and, and participants that I've had in my studies. So I'm always, um, I'm, I'm open for people to to show me um, some evidence in terms of why females would respond differently to males when using a higher volume or a higher frequency, I'm I'm open to that. But from what I've seen and my own experience, I I haven't seen that at all. I think um, 
what I guess the reason for a higher frequency in my opinion for women would be that like we all said, they can recover from doing more total work because each unit of work is a lower load, therefore less fatiguing and their muscles are much smaller. Therefore they should be able to recover quicker and the total amount of work that they're able to do in a week might be a little bit greater. And because of that, we may not be able to split it up into only two sessions or one session. And therefore, because that total amount of work might be more, we may need to split it up into three or four sessions in a week for it to be reasonable. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. I guess the other thing I was thinking about when you were talking about um, um, what you were just saying was there probably will be differences between the types of exercise too. So for example, if they were doing the leg press, I, I don't think you'd see much different because of the, um, the complexities of let's say a deadlift or a squat, the higher complexities of that movement compared to a, let's say a leg press or a leg extension. Um, so from that perspective, there may be something there, but I don't think it's to do with the muscle itself. I, I think it could be neural if there was anything that may the, the mural, the neural fatigue factor may present itself differently. There, there is, I guess that is an, a, um, one opinion that I've heard. Um, but from just resistance training itself, so not looking primarily at powerlifting, I don't see the, the, the frequency as a, a factor that would influence um, adaptations. So I just want to clarify what you said and tell me if I'm wrong for the listeners. Um, what you're saying is that in exercises that are more complex or technically demanding, there might be an advantage to higher frequencies generally in training because there is that learning component. But for exercises that are technically simple or mechanically simple, like a single joint exercise or leg extension or like a leg press where there's not really much technique involved, it's likely that higher frequency itself may not confer an advantage to training. Correct. Yeah. So if you, if you want to become a, a, um, a golfer or if you want to become something where there's a high skill component, what mm. you need to do is put in your hours of training. Mm -hmm. It's all about, it's all about, it's not about just doing a couple of hard sessions and that's it. Like it's all to do with refining that movement. So it kind of makes sense that from a technical aspect, frequency would be important. And then we're, we're looking at the, okay, for males and females, maybe it is the absolute load there. So if males are lifting a lot heavier loads, then you want the fatigue to dissipate at a greater rate than performance. Mm. And that's what you're looking at when it comes to um, periodization. So that, that, you know, you, you, when you, when you want someone to peak, in terms of a competition, um, we basically want, because there's always going to be fatigue following training, we just want that fatigue to basically reduce at a greater rate than our increase in performance. So then we have a, a greater gain in the net performance. And that's what happens with peaking for a, um, an event or a competition. Um, I want to take you back. Um, we're going to talk about differences or similarities in response to a given volume of training between men and women now, because I think this might tie into the frequency discussion. Um, you mentioned that possibly within a set, there's differences in fatigability, although that's very up in the air because of conflicting results. 
You also mentioned that women seem to have a greater oxidative capacity. Um, so that's like, I don't know, aerobic capacity or ability to synthesize energy using oxygen in the muscles. Is there any reason to assume that women could get through more total work at a relative intensity in a given session? Well, if we go with the premise that females may activate muscles differently, then yes. So if, 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 if they are, like you were saying before, um, from what your own experience, that females may fail differently for a squat compared to um, males, well, certain muscles will have a greater ability to withstand higher volumes. So if we go in along with that premise that there may be differences in activation, then you would suspect that there may be differences in the, the capacity of females to perform better than males. Um, again, um, there's always a lot of speculation and you have to think that females come in shape or shapes and sizes. Um, so you, you need to be kind of really cautious about making these types of statements. Mm. Um, and, and the same with males too. Um, you'll have males that perform better for certain exercises than other exercises. Um, but collectively I would, I'd ear on the side of saying that there is, if there is any differences, um, it'd be minimal. Okay. And what about, um, what about training intensity? Are there differences in, in both like the tolerance of high training intensities? And do you think there are differences in the adaptations to a given intensity between men and women? I'll explain that second one further if you want in a second, but do you think there are differences in response? Um, I don't, I don't think there is. No. Okay. No, no. Um, I had a, I had a group of, um, I was running, you were involved in this, the powerlifting study, mm-hmm. uh, where we, we had a, a group, um, group, males and females that were recruited, um, further away from a major competition. And then about a week out from competition, seeing, um, changes in their performance. Um, there was muscular endurance there was um, power tests. There was strength tests of the chest or the vent. There was a chest press and the, the leg press, body composition changes, bloods and all that too. And there were, there were some of the females definitely were able to perform a greater volume at, a, at the same relative load, but there were some females that exactly the same as males. So, and that's, that's what I was talking about before. It's, there was basically no difference for some and others, there, there was some difference. So you're going to get these outliers that will basically show that they're, they're able to, to um, you know, perform a, a larger amount of volume at a certain um, intensity. Um, with the loads that are used, I always think that it, when you're working off relative loads, um, you are individualizing the programs. So unless unless they're not truly um, working at a set relative load, um, I don't think that you'll see much of a difference in terms of response overall, that is. Again, you have to keep in mind that there will be individuals that will respond differently. So the second part of my question, I probably phrased it really badly, was about um, was about different adaptations across the intensity spectrum. And I know there was one study a while ago that um, that led people to speculate that women might need a higher a higher relative intensity 
to maximize hypertrophy um, in response to a resistance training program. And then since then, I think there's been a couple of studies that haven't found the same. Are, are there any differences in, in the responses that you might have observed or, you know, um, yeah. Is there anything that you think to that? Um, no, I, I don't think that I have, I haven't come across anything to, to substantiate that that would be the case that you would see these types of um, changes. I, I think that, yeah, I, I think that research is evolving to the point where we are now able to utilize technology to a greater extent to provide more information into how people truly respond to training. So with like ways of documenting their diet and, you know, carb counting and sleep. So with all that, then we will start to see emerge what actually is driving these adaptations. Um, I, I do think that people will be surprised in the future because they'll, they'll notice that there has been studies run where the results are quite different to the results of a similarly run study today. And largely that is due to what we have in our, um, what, what, what we have um, that we can utilize now in terms of um, just, yeah, technology, um, ways to monitor activity levels, sleep, diet, um, ways of monitoring resistance training. So there's some of these studies that we're including in the meta-analysis, they go back to the early 80s. Mm. And um, it, what a failure set is, is quite different to what we now know is a failure set. So before a failure set was, okay, well, when they think they couldn't do any more, that's failure. Um, compared to, well, they attempt to do a, an extra repetition and they cannot. So there are quite like it's quite different in terms of that. And then in terms of how people report the prescription. So for example, um, three sets of six RM and that's, you know, that that's all the information you have in terms of how training was progressed compared to now people are talking, researchers are talking about, well, um, six repetitions were, were, was performed. And if there was an additional number of repetitions that could be performed, the participant was encouraged to keep performing reps until failure. Then in the next session, the load was adjusted so that it would be um, highly probable that each set would be performed to only six repetitions. So people are now prescribing exercise that is a bit more in terms of the research setting, that's a little bit more um, realistic. And because of that, we're able to decipher what is, I guess, more applicable and realistic. So the, the big thing that a lot of people and maybe the listeners will struggle with is that I'm referring to research here. And the research is done in a setting that is quite different to what you would experience with your clients. Um, now, there is this big push towards bringing more applied findings, um, you know, into our research so that it is more meaningful. And in doing that, uh, implementing uh, methods that 
are commonly used by trainers. So, you know, my fitness pal for, um, you know, entering in diet stuff and um, using other, you know, like things to help when it comes to um, trying to provide the clients as well as the, the readers with what was happening on a day-to-day basis within a training bout or training um, intervention. Now is it on? Now, sorry, we had a microphone malfunction. Um, That's all right. I guess what you're what you're talking about leads me to like the big meta question, which I wanted to ask. That's a few of your your answers recently have sort of started to say how important individual differences are, and how sometimes the ecological validity of research isn't that high. We can't necessarily just extrapolate it to our own practice. So as, as practitioners who are trying to be evidence-based and who are trying to take advantage of science, how do we go about, how do we go about applying this sort of population level data to individuals in front of us? How do we actually intelligently use this knowledge and not be misled by it? Okay. Um, I was re I can't say what this paper is because it's confidential, but, um, I was reviewing a paper that looked into... Weekly Wade's exclusive. Sorry, go on. Oh. <laughs> I was reviewing a paper recently and um, this is really insightful into what could be done to help with individualizing programs from a, a volume perspective. Um, so when we read about three sets is better than, you know, like three sets better than one set, sorry, three sets is better than one set and five sets is better than three and so on. And and then you probably get a bit of a, a ceiling effect when you get over six sets for an exercise. So with this study, they trained, um, one limb with a prescribed number of sets volume and the other limb was prescribed. And this was with a leg extension exercise. They prescribed, um, that based on a a uh, certain number, sorry, a an increase, a certain amount of increase above the self-reported training volume. So that's how they made it um, individualized. So, for example, if someone was um, training their legs, the the quads for twenty six sets per week, um, it's not sex. <laughs> Freudian slip. They say they're a figment of your ejaculation. Oh, really? <laughs> well, it's the sex differences. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, so with the um, individualized volume approach, what can be done is, let's say, uh, 1.2 times your weekly um, volume for a particular muscle group. So that would be, be different for you, for me, for everyone else. Mm. Okay? But the response you would expect would be quite similar. Okay. Because we're increasing that by a, a relative amount. Um, so when looking at, for example, 20 sets, sets, uh, and that's a tongue twister, sets and sex, um, sets so for a week. Presume that sex means sets for the rest of this podcast. It's fine. Okay. You can't edit it. No, no unfortunately not. <laughs> Go. <laughs> um, so yeah, so sex refers to sets. Um, so when when you can individualize the self-reported training, when you can try to do that, that is a better way of approaching 
training and using evidence to guide you. So for example, my study with looking at German, the German volume training, um, there was 10 sets of 10 repetitions and you could add up the number of sets per muscle region. Looking at the total number of sets, you can kind of figure out how many they would, you know, use in. And then you can kind of look at how many, how much volume your clients are currently training at. Mm. And if you see that you're basically doing a very similar volume, well, I would say that you're not probably you're probably not going to gain much from doing that type of training um, unless you're manipulating something else, such as maybe the intensity um, or um, maybe the frequency or something like that. So it is very important to use self-reported training. So what you know your clients are currently doing, and then see how well you can extrapolate the information from these studies to see how closely your clients are training at that type of exercise prescription. If it's quite different, then potentially you may want to try that approach. You may want to try, um, you know, increasing the volume or increasing the intensity. But if you see there's not much of a difference there, then I don't see why you really need to change your training um, based on the findings of that study. Because remember, the findings of that study is based on a cohort that potentially had very limited training experience compared to the clients that your listeners may have already been exposed to. Right. So just to clarify what you were talking about with the individualization of volume, what you're saying is that you can make adjustments based, like based on rather than considering a given set count overall, you can just make adjustments based on what your your clients are currently doing. So, so make a volume increase by saying we're going to do 20% more volume than you do currently, as opposed Mm -hmm. to elevating somebody from doing five sets per week to doing 15 or 20 sets per week, which is a 300% increase. And you Mm -hmm. might expect similar changes in their response to exercise from that. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, definitely. And it's highly important to regularly monitor in various ways, performance, um, monitor um, just their their wellness mood because um, all these will give you insights into how well your clients are coping with the training. And you will know when you need to adjust training loads to, um, to, to better enhance the adaptations. Cool. I, I want to just go back to this, this men and women comparison paper quickly before we move off again. And that's just to ask you so far, everything we've asked, you've more or less said things appear to be similar, but in what ways other than considering the menstrual cycle are women not alike men in terms of their response to training? Uh I would probably say that, well, you said apart from the menstrual cycle, well, we obviously, we have the, the lean body mass. That's obviously greater mm-hmm. um, in males. Um, we have potentially um, the, the biomechanical factors. So even with like a bench press, for example, and, and the, the shoulder width and creating a, a greater base there. 
to help with um, generation of force. Um, potentially the psych, the psych in terms of, um, I, I haven't really followed up on this, but I've spoken to a couple of people about this in the past and there could be differences there um, in terms of, Males, and this might be related to um, hormones. You know, you, you hear about, you know, testosterone rage and things like that. So potentially males may be a little bit more aggressive and um, in terms of how they train, really pushing that, you know, themselves that little bit of um, that extra bit further. Um, there is, you see this time and time again with a lot of the um, the fatigue studies where, where they've done um, experiments in which they've tried to identify whether extra force can be generated um, following a fatiguing performance. And they've shown that muscles are able, like um, in, in females and males, but um, in certain conditions, there, are, there is a little bit of unreserved, there's a, there's, sorry, a little bit of reserved potential to, um, to be utilized within a resistance exercise bout. So how you tap into that, that is really based along the lines of motivation, um, you know, shouting, grunting. Um, they've done experiments where they've got rifles or sh pistols and they've shot them. Um, you know, all that, that, that is so important, especially when you want to um, lift with maximal effort and generate as much force as possible. You can't do that all the time. And potentially um, you may have a limited amount of opportunity in which you can utilize that. Right. So I, I, I'd probably say that that might be something that um, males are able to do to a better degree than females to basically really switch on and really, um, but now, again, I'm, I'm saying this generally because you're going to have isolated cases where that's not the case. But I say generally, I say that males would be able to switch on a bit more than females when it comes to performing exercise at these higher intensities. And th that kind of conflicts with what I was saying before in terms of do you really need to train at um, higher intensities to, to um, you know, maximize your adaptations? Um, it does conflict with that. But... I like. I do see that there is a need to do that. Um, maybe not as frequent as some people do push themselves. You know, push this belief that you need to do it nearly every session. But that it is an important part of training that you do really need to lift at higher intensities. And maybe males might be able to do that a little bit easier than females. So, if I were to summarise what you said just then. You're saying that the biomechanical differences and like the anatomical differences between males and females might mean that to develop the power lifts, we need slightly different emphases in what we prescribe. But when you just consider the actual training variables, the response to frequencies, intensities and volumes may be similar. We just need to distribute that work a little bit differently. And possibly though this was more speculative, there may be differences in the psychological approach to lifting and, and, you know, women's ability to generate arousal as needed. But that was speculation you said. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Cool. Okay. That's, that's very interesting. So another sort of big meta question, um, which was, well, actually first question is what attracted you to do research 
personally? Because you spoke about having trained clients yourself. Were you a personal trainer? Yeah, I was. Yeah, I um, well, going back, um, I used to do athletics, middle distance running, and I um, I'm actually. Yeah, I actually am starting a bit more running training now, which is interesting because I'm also looking at concurrent training. I'm doing a bit of research in concurrent training. So where you um, implement both aerobic exercise and resistance training. Really interesting area of study. Um, so my, um, my background is in athletics. And when I was um, um, finished high school, I ended up getting a lot of injuries through athletics. I took up resistance training, bulked up, got close to 100 kilos, um, felt really um, unfit and it was difficult, you know, walking upstairs. I used to be able to bound upstairs and now I was kind of struggling to make my way up. And But I saw the benefit that resistance training had and I ended up doing some personal training courses and I was personal training. Um, so I used to um, train clients. Um, majority of clients were. Um, oh no! Weekly weights. Yep. All right, guys, we're back on weekly weights. Um, Sydney's just been hit by a thunderstorm, so we lost our internet connection for one second, and Alex has had to run because his girlfriend's stuck in the garage. Um, so. <laughs> So the thunderstorm interrupted um, Daniel telling us he'd had an athletics background, started resistance training, enjoyed the benefits of it, got his cert three and four and was training clients. Um, how did that lead you to being a researcher? Um, well, my parents wanted me to, um, to do something where they felt that I had a more stable type of occupation. Um, things are different nowadays where most people now create their own um, employment um, through yeah, different means. But um, so my parents kind of pushed me into going to uni. I did a um, bachelor of exercise and sports science, uh, did a diploma of education, um, tried PE teaching for a while, didn't really like it. I ended up going back to TAFE for this time to teach personal trainers and fitness instructors. So I did that for a couple of years. And at the same time, I did a master's at the University of Sydney. And I, after completing that, um, and also still working at TAFE as a teacher in the, um, the Department of Sports and Fitness and that, I did some exercise physiology work. Um, and I still do a exercise. I still am an exercise physiologist. So it's someone that um, prescribes exercise for people with a variety of different needs and conditions. And, um, and then I ended up getting a job in 2013 at the University of Sydney as a discipline specialist. And I did my, sorry, that's 2009, sorry, 2009 I ended up. And during 2009, as well as working at the University of Sydney, I commenced my PhD and completed that in 2013, became full-time permanent employee um, of University of Sydney at um, 2013 and um, been here ever since um, doing teaching in our undergraduate and postgraduate courses, as well as um, doing research in just a variety of different areas from bodybuilders, powerlifters, people with cancer, um, children. Um, it goes on. So I guess how that leads me to my next big overarching question is – you obviously, in your practice as a personal trainer, 
were making, like you were collecting observations and making inferences about what sorts of training worked for your clients. And probably you were also being given information by other people just on the basis of experience and gym wisdom. How much, how much sort of stock do you put in just the anecdotal evidence um, and practices provided to you by fitness professionals who don't conduct research? I, to tell you the truth, very little. Okay. And the re- the reason for that, um, because I was, uh, I'm a perfect example. When I've trained people in the past, I would come up with reasons why they responded to training. And now having a lot of science experience behind me and looking back, um, I can see that what I thought resulted from a training intervention is was probably most likely confounded by other things my clients were doing at the same time. So well, I, 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 go on. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was, for example, large volumes of exercise. This is like a perfect example. Large volumes, volumes of exercise was, um, the way to go when it came to losing weight. Okay. And I'd have my clients, you know, 300 minutes a week, maybe of exercise and you'd start seeing some really large changes in weight and in diet also that they'd kind of shift um, their caloric intake um, to minimal levels so that they create a greater deficit and, you know, they'd see some substantial amount of weight loss. Um, But looking back at those, those examples there, I can see and using again from what I know from research that was mainly driven by the diet and not so much by the exercise. However, I was putting a lot more value on the exercise because I thought that was the primary driver and that the, the clients could get away with not always sticking strictly to their diet, but definitely sticking strictly with their training. My philosophy now has changed where the diet would be the one that's probably of most importance compared to the, the exercise. Okay. Um, I like, I can completely see how that example would be the case. I want to play devil's advocate though, and say that a lot of your, a lot of the research that you have done, or at least some of it. So the German volume training is an example has sought to either validate or refute or in some way shed light on the anecdotal experiences and practices that you're seeing of personal trainers and people who are actually engaged in these sports. And you've also said there's this move towards a lot of applied research and exercise science where people try and do things that has more ecological validity. Do you think that, do you think that research follows practice, which then promotes small changes in practice and refines what we're already finding to be true. So it explains what we observe around us. Or do you think it should be that practice should always follow research and be conservative? Oh, that's, that's a really tough question because the trainers that are a little that like your listeners that are switched on, they're more likely to implement strategies and methods that are based on evidence. Mm. So it's really difficult to kind of say, well, which would come first. Mm. Um, I, when you said anecdotal evidence, where do I place that? Well, it always, allows us to ask questions and that's what it is. It's asking questions from a researcher's perspective. It allows us to ask questions. 
how much of that can we use to guide our our advice? I don't. Again, like I, my opinion is that it, it shouldn't. It right. shouldn't guide that approach. That's my opinion. Um, but you could talk to other people in different um, sports and activities where there is just not enough research out there for um, for them to, um, I guess, validate what they do. Okay? And in that circumstance, well, it's fair game because they, as long as, like, there are a lot of good coaches out there that implement practices that are very scientific. So even though they've got anecdotal evidence, because it's not backed by peer-reviewed um, evidence uh, or research, they do things in which are scientific in practice. Right. So they're rigorous in how they get data, how they exactly. analyze it, and they're cautious in their inferences about causality. They just say these are observations that are consistent. Yes. So with that type of coach or trainer, um, I would I wouldn't say that that's entirely anecdotal because I would say that it's almost like a a case study type approach where um, you're using data to guide to guide your um, your training and your decisions rather than just using experiences and trying to I guess um, link the dots. So if I were to summarize what you've, what you're saying, it's good coaching practice should rely primarily on evidence, but where we do use our anecdotal experiences, we want to be as systematic and still cautious in interpreting it as we can. Yes. You say that better myself. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) So you, um, you spoke about how you used to have a sort of a bro scientific belief. We'll call it that about the role of exercise in weight loss. Has yep. there has there been anything where something that you had thought was bro science you've actually overturned and and realised was the case in research or something where your mind has just completely changed? Yeah. That's a good question. Um, well, how about this? What's a finding that's really surprised you? Well, I guess like nothing has really surprised me to tell you the truth. But you just um, it all already. Well, it's not so much. Well, when you go through research, you're always, you assume the null hypothesis that there's going to be no difference. Yeah. I was going to say that means nothing to many people. So the null hypothesis is the hypothesis that there's no difference between two conditions, right? So whether you yeah. train with high volume or low volume, you'll get the same results. Yeah. And then you and, um, prove the null when you have evidence that one is better or different from the other. Yeah. So like even a lot of the reviews that I've done with um, like Tim Davies, for example, um, you know, failure versus non-failure, there's no difference. Um, velocity-based training, whether using fast velocity or slow, slower velocity, no difference. So a lot of these findings, um, German volume training um, compared to lower volume, no difference. Um, there's... Yeah, I, I there hasn't really been much to surprise me. If there was great, let's say, if failure produced greater gains in strength from my, our reviews, then that would have surprised me because it would have um, 
again, agreed with a lot of bro sites in terms of really pushing those sets. Um, with German volume training, if that produced superior gains in hypertrophy, again, um, and, and that would have agreed with bro science. And so nothing has really surprised me yet. Um, not saying that it won't in the future. There's a couple of things that, um, especially with the blood flow restriction training, um, there's some interesting things that we've started to identify now, which I think is, it, it is kind of surprising. Um, meaning there was, there's been no differences in performance, whether you do restriction in recovery or not, which I think even though blood lactate is different, um, that the response that is um, to sets. So I think that's kind of, there's some things in the pipeline which will probably surprise me, but currently as it stands, um, nothing has to this date surprised me in terms of the research findings. I'm going to, I'm going to keep at you with difficult questions. Sorry. So if, if a lot of research finds no difference or no practical differences between two different types of interventions, um, why is it then important what we do? Like what, how is it that certain things are better than others when, when we just look at one variable, it doesn't appear to matter awfully much. What are we seeing really? Well, we still have to, just because someone swears that something works or not, we can't take them on their word. Um, we, we need to have a, a more rigorous way of identifying what works and what doesn't work. Um, the best model of approach is with a, a scientific experiment. So that's, that's the reason why these studies are done. These studies are done and reviews are done so that we have um, information at our disposal to assist. Are you still there? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I'm listening. I thought you were. Yeah. Uh, oh, I'm not yeah that. So, um, so we have information. <laughs> Go on. Um, we have information at our disposal so that, <laughs> um, that, 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 that that we could rely upon to help us with um, you know informing our decisions. So uh, no no research is useless. We we use all research to help improve future research. So in terms of the German volume training, um, I would not leave it as it is now. I would not just say that there's no difference between the 10 sets and the five sets. I wouldn't leave it there because there are certain, like I said before earlier on in our um, talk, I always list limitations to my research and we want to better. I want to better myself as a researcher. And to do that, I need to look at the limitations of previous studies and see whether I can design a study to account for these limitations to provide some more evidence to see whether there is in fact a benefit towards 10 sets compared to five sets. So in the future, I would um, like to do another study looking at German volume training and potentially um, not using the same types of exercises. We used a lot of um, machine-based exercises when in fact the German volume training traditionally has utilized lifts such as squats and deadlifts. Um, so these compound exercises and exploited them to a greater degree than what we did in our study where we used a lot of machine-based exercises. So um, doing that is probably going to lead towards slightly different results. Now, whether those results lead towards 
a different overall finding. I don't know, but that's what research is about. It, it helps us to um, evolve our way of thinking. And as long as there is, as long as there is, um, I guess, time, <laughs> we're going to be always trying to see um, what research is true and what research isn't true and what research can be utilized to help with advancing um, not just performance, but health. Mm. Um, so I, I think that no research is pointless. I think that there is a common um, perception that non-significant findings is basically a worthless pursuit in terms of pursuing that. When in fact, um, not just the general public may have that that um, that thought, but also a lot of journal um, editors and people involved in um, accepting manuscripts for, from um, journals. And that has led towards a large number of rejections um, for numerous researchers globally, which isn't a good thing because what we end up being left with is a lot of studies for a particular field that has shown something that may not be the true representation of all the studies that have investigated a particular topic. So if I, I'm going to jump in. So for listeners, what Daniel's describing is say there were a hundred studies done investigating high and low volumes of training, right. And seeing if there was a difference in response between them. And if, 40 of those studies found that there was a difference and the majority of them favored high volumes. And then the 60 studies that found there was no difference between the conditions were less likely to be published because they were deemed less interesting or, or important for some reason. Then when somebody like Daniel goes and collects those hundred ish studies and puts them together to do a meta analysis or something, you have a body of literature that's biased towards expressing results that don't necessarily reflect the total body of research that's been done because the stuff that says there's no difference is less likely to be published. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and then we also have to look into like the German volume training study was quite interesting because we noticed that in terms of diet compliance with diet, um, we, we instructed people to eat a certain amount of um, calories per day and we try to um, allow them to have a certain breakdown of macros and um, people were very non-compliant and you would even say that um, it would have been great if people were 100% compliant because you may have seen slightly different results. Mm. Um, that's always a struggle in terms of research because really if we look at a muscle hypertrophy, it is very much influenced by the, the diet and um, speaking to bodybuilders that I've trained and that have been involved in um, studies of mine, when I've asked them what, what led them towards being a amateur to a professional bodybuilder, uh, what was the major change and hundred percent said diet. I've learned how to eat. Mm -hmm. And that's really um, interesting because 
we all always focus on the training. You know, we think about, you know, pumping iron and, and the, you know, how to get that pump and the best training. But these guys that I've spoken to um, that are world champions uh, in their weight divisions and that, they all mentioned this diet, you know, it's all about the diet and the training. Yes, it's important, but diet is of greater importance in their perspective. So what you're, what you've just alluded to, excuse you, um, yep. what you just alluded to is, um, is what I thought you were going to respond to my initial question, which is why is it that we see interventions on the whole might be better than other ones, even when the training variables don't appear to describe the difference. And that's how interrelated and multifactorial our responses to exercise are. So even though studies might only look at things through a very narrow lens because they're trying to answer a specific question, when we're working as practitioners and coaches, we're trying to apply all of those variables to somebody. And so, and so because people's responses can be predicated upon all of those different things, we can't always explain the whole response just through a narrow lens. And so we have to have that overview before mm. we can. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so I think there's there's various pieces of the puzzle um, that need to be, I guess, focused on with, with a lot of research. Um, animal research has a place um, in, in terms of identifying things like classic studies with hyperplasia um, and, and, you know, and, and ways in which to enhance hypertrophy and types of contractions and, a lot of stuff from animals um, have allowed us to then um, advance our way of thinking and study design into the humans, us, and it's, it's been great. But I guess the next challenge is how, how, what type of approach to use to allow for these other factors um, to be controlled or accounted for. Um, like we mentioned, diet and um, and the other factor, it would be sleep. Um, so I had an interesting discussion with a participant today about the sleep aspect. And um, from there, there was a recent review um, looking at sleep deprivation and strength. And that shows that it does play a role in terms of um, – if you go for periods of time without sleeping well, that it will influence the adaptative responses. Um, I would also suspect that it would be the same for hypertrophy as well. Um, a lot of the time nowadays, if you think about us our aspect being creatures, we're evolving to the point where we are living on less sleep, but when we're trying to train harder, um, that's probably not the best approach because it means that we're probably going to work our bodies to the point where they won't be able to respond as well as what we'd like them to respond. And it could actually open up a, a, another can of worms in terms of our overall health being compromised. So um, I, I think in the future, it would be good, like you were saying, to look at these other factors um, to see if we can control them better so that it might be able to more clearly explain what variables from a training perspective would be of greater importance towards um, optimizing um, our, you know, our performance gains. Cool. Daniel, thank you so much. This has been a really good discussion. Um, 
if there's anything you'd like to add, shoot. Otherwise, I want to take a really quick break and then come back and hit you with the four questions that tell us everything we need to know about a person. Okay. All right, let's do it. Quick break. We'll be right back. Weekly Weights. Guys, welcome back. It's Weekly Weights. Um, I'm Will. Alex had to go let his girlfriend out of the garage. And we're with Dr. Daniel Hackett. We're going to hit him with the four questions that tell us everything we need to know about a person. Alex normally asks the first two, but today I'll do it. Question one, Daniel, is if you could go to dinner with any person, dead or alive, who would it be? Oh, it has to be my wife. <laughs> that is the lamest answer. We've had that answer a lot of times. Presume you could oh, take it? her. Yeah. Presume you could take her. Not your wife. Like, <laughs> um, No, presuming you could take your wife with you. Presuming yeah. you could take your wife with you, who would you take? Oh, who would I take? That's a good question. Uh, I don't know. Maybe someone like Michael Jordan, actually. Michael Jordan would be a very interesting bloke to chat to. Yeah, yeah. I'd say Michael Jordan or... Um, oh, who else? There's there's a there's a run because I have got a background in athletics. There's a runner called Emil Zadapek, very interesting runner. He used to um, do these crazy things. He used to like run in the snow with army boots to try to um, experience what it would feel like to just be able to not run anymore. He used to run on his washing to wash his clothes. He used to hold his breath and run till he passed out. He did these crazy things. He, he was the first um, athlete to win the, the treble, which was a, a gold medal in the 5,000, 10,000 and the marathon in the same Olympics. So it's never been done before. Um, he's from Czechoslovakia. So um, he'd be interesting. Um, cricket, Don Bradman would be interesting. Um, so you want to talk to a really interesting sportsman who just had a story, basically. Yeah, like there's so many. Like sport is... You know what, like when it, what separates the sport, the people, like you've got the genetic factors, you've got their motivation, but I'd probably say they're very similar, like that they'd all have that similar drive in terms of what makes them what they are. Um, I'm, a, I'm a huge believer in the whole, um, you know, like not like there's genetic factors, but the effort and the motivation just to put in the hard yards. Um, and, and when you look at some of these athletes, you just see that that's what the, their whole life revolves around being focused on the sport. And I think that's just amazing. And just to hear about their sacrifices, their, um, their ups and downs. Um, I think it'd be really interesting, um, especially with people um, from previous eras. Cause nowadays when it comes to like professional sports, like they've got it pretty sweet in terms of, you know, endorsements and, you know, like, you know, everything that, you know, it's probably harder in some ways too, because they're always in the spotlight. So they can't get away with what people would could do previously. But um, yeah, it'd be interesting just to talk to a variety of different professional or not different, different world champion athletes from different eras and just get their perspective on things. I think it'd be awesome. Cool. So question two is actually, who's your favorite athlete of all time? Oh, uh, all time. That's. <sighs> I feel like you've a couple. So yeah. Yeah. I, uh, Liz, uh, there, are, there are a lot. Um, 
you know what? Like, really, there's I, – I respect any athlete that has dedicated their life to that sport and um, they've all got advent- – they've all got stories to tell. Everyone's got a story to tell um, from people like, um, I don't know, like uh, Roger Federer to um, Usain Bolt to Ronaldo. Like they've all got their stories. So I'm, yeah, I'm a fan of all sports, put it that way. All right. Question three then. Um, Which movie or television character do you most resemble? Oh. Uh, TV character or movie? That's. Uh, I thought this was going to be easier to answer when I saw these questions, but um, what did I say? I oh, who would come to mind? Um, I've got. I've got. I, you know, if, if you ask my mum, she'd say Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey, really? I can. I can sort yeah, of say Jim, Jim in the mask. Cause like for we don't have a we don't have oh, a, a podcast, um, but yeah, Daniel's yeah. bald. So in the mask, I can see it because he doesn't have the hair. <laughs> but I, I think of Jim Carrey as having like big hair, you know. So yeah, don't, don't was, not so much from the looks department, but more, more like from my my silliness. I right, tend okay. to yeah yeah. <laughs> All right, okay. Question four then: Your life was being made into a montage. And you could choose the music that it was set to. What song would you pick? Yeah. Oh. Um. Could it be any music, any yeah, song, anything you want, any song. Ah. Oh. Well, let's start with a genre. What are you thinking? I don't know. I don't know. I listen to a whole range of different music. So I, um, I, I used to do. I used to sing in a band too. By the way. Yeah. Wow. I won't do any. I, don't, I won't do any rendition now. But uh, um, <laughs> I, oh, it, it depends on like. Yeah, I've. Oh, it. Yeah. What I don't. I don't. Uh, so Tim Davies think. said. Tim Davies said some very like hard metal. Oh what? Really? Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. I thought he'd be but, liking the love songs. No, not at all. But I mean, if you want to go something more love songy yourself, you can. No, 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 none of that. Um, I'm not a big love song person. <laughs> oh, no. Oh wow! I, I yeah. So a- anything that's kind of like. I can't give you any. Oh, yeah. I, I some, something better. funk. Something funk. I, 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 I'll tell you. I'll tell you one. Ice Ice Baby. There, <laughs> there it ice, is. Ice Baby. All right. Yeah. Sure. We'll that take that. That sounds good. The yeah. best thing is that my internet dropped out for for probably fifteen seconds then, and when it came yeah. back, you were still just going. Ah, oh, ah. Oh, I don't know. So, <laughs> All right, Ice Ice Baby it is. Um, uh, cool. Thank you so much for having joined us today. That's the end of the podcast, guys. I'm Will. You can find me on Instagram at w.berkmanpt. Alex is at alexhays underscore process. Um, Daniel, if people want to get in touch with you or find some of your research, where can they look? 
Okay. Um, I, I'm on ResearchGate. So that's a, um, a place in which you can access any of my articles. Um, so you can, you can log on to that. You don't have to be a academic or anything. You can just register with research date dot, sorry, researchgate.com. And, um, and from that, you'll be able to um, go to my, um, you could follow me and you can view any of my articles and anyone that you need full text. You just send me a message and I send it straight to you. Um, if people want to ask me any questions, um, please be um, happy just to send me an email. It's just daniel.hackett at sydney.edu.au and I'm happy to answer any questions that you may have. Cool. Mate, thank you so much for having joined us. It's been a really great chat. Um, if there's anything you'd like to say in closing, then feel free. Otherwise, we'll let you go. Yeah, um, no, it was a pleasure being on the show. Um, and big shout out to everyone out there that's listening in. And um, just please uh, keep an eye out for the research coming out, uh, which is the the sex, not the sets, differences. Um, so uh, it should, the, the first paper um, should be since probably published in the next couple of months and that was the one just with females alone and the one comparing females and males we're looking at probably later next year cool all right thank you so much for joining us mate guys it's been weekly wage we'll talk to you next week